Hello and welcome. This podcast is a production of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, parents, and friends. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Scott Doney, the Joe D. and Helen J. Kingdon Professor in Environmental Change in the Department of Environmental Sciences at the University of Virginia. His research focuses on how the global carbon cycle and ocean ecology respond to natural and human-driven climate change. One of his current areas of study is ocean acidification due to the invasion into the ocean of carbon dioxide and other chemicals from fossil fuel burning. In this podcast, Professor Doni will speak with us about coastal water quality. So thank you, Professor Doni, for being here today. Oh, thank you, Susan. Can you start by explaining coastal water quality and why is it an important issue for us to understand? Well, around the globe, but especially in the US, a, a lot of people live along the coastlines, whether it's in coastal cities along the East Coast or the West Coast or the Gulf, or in suburban and rural communities. And people depend upon the water in ways that they don't fully appreciate. Right, so it's not just looking out on beautiful vistas, the, the habitat itself, all the wildlife depends on the water quality. And one of the concerns is that if, with all the people living along the coast, if that water quality is degraded, it's gonna impact not just uh, recreational values, but commercial fishing, uh, the habitat that, um, that wetlands provide, and gen just the overall general health of the coastal ecosystem. I see, so how are people altering the coastal water quality? So one of the, one, one of the problems is that people generate waste. So one of the concerns we're working on is sewage. And you may think, oh, this is a, this is a, a problem from the, the 1800s or the early 1900s. But in, in many communities, um, a lot of sewage is still discharged into, into coastal waters. And in many places, um, a lot of homes and businesses are on septic systems. And so that sewage leaches into the groundwater and then eventually gets to the coastal water. And so sewage brings with it, uh, it bacteria, but also uh, excess nutrients. So when we eat food, we don't, we don't use up all the nutrients, gets into the sewage. When, it, when that water gets into the coastal waterways, it can call, cause algal blooms. And the same thing can happen because of excess fertilizer. So in some places, this is fertilizer. You know, you want to put fertilizer on your lawn or on agricultural fields. And what we'd hope is that all that fertilizer would stay with the plants you're trying to fertilize. But unfortunately, some of it gets washed off, some of it leaches into the groundwater. And so those excess nutrients, uh, in this case, a combination in some places of nitrogen and phosphorus, is making it into streams and groundwater and getting into coastal estuaries, coastal bays. And similarly to sewage, that can cause uh, these algal blooms. Now, one of the problems with algal blooms is that they disrupt the, the normal functioning of the coastal ocean. Um, 
you get these really big algal blooms that can, some of them can be toxic. Well, you'll sometimes hear them called now harmful algal blooms or red tides. In some places they're called brown tides. Uh, some of it's just too much algae and it actually can block the sunlight. So the plants that grow in shallow water don't get enough sunlight, so they can't grow. So eelgrass and seagrass beds are sometimes destroyed. Uh, some of these algae actually produce toxic chemicals uh, that affect not only marine life, but people. So uh, in many places, uh, not just in the coastal ocean, but now in, for example, the great, some of the Great Lakes, um, you will have closer, closures of fisheries or shell fisheries because uh, shellfish in particular are really good. They filter feed out uh, algae out of the water column, but if those algae have toxins in them, they actually will concentrate their toxins in their tissue. And so we need to close those shellfish beds to protect people's health. So, and then the third way that this coastal pollution of nutrients uh, affects coastal waterways is these algae blooms that are fueled by all these excess nutrients from sewage and from fertilizer, um, eventually they die. And so you have all of this algal biomass and a lot of it gets consumed in the water by bacteria. And when the bacteria consume the, the organic matter, it's just like, just like your respiration. You eat food, you breathe in oxygen, the bacteria are doing the same thing. And so a lot of coastal waterways are being choked off. Uh, all the oxygen is being sucked out of the water by these bacteria. And particularly during the summer when you have a lot of a lot of plant growth and a lot of algal growth. The water is warm, it can't hold much oxygen. Sometimes it's stratified so the, the bottom waters aren't exposed to the atmosphere. You get these low oxygen events and sometimes you'll hear this, you know, the, the jargony phrase is nutrient eutrophication, too many nutrients leads to hypoxia, which is basically low oxygen. And in many places this is um, affecting fish and invertebrates that normally live along the bottom. If the oxygen get, gets too low, they die and you'll get fish kills because of these low oxygen events. So those are sort of the three big issues um, uh, around nutrients. One is too much algae. So you're affecting the normal plant growth along the bottom because you've cut off the light. The second is these harmful algal blooms because some of the algae are toxic that are growing on the excess nutrients. And the third is eventually you'll use up the oxygen when the algae dies. And this is happening up and down the east coast of the US uh, and in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, at the mouth of Mississippi. I see. Is this a problem that only concerns people who live on the coast? You know, we have alumni, uh, parents and friends that live in the in middle of the country. I'm from the Midwest, I have family there. Is this something that, that everybody needs to be concerned about? Yeah, there's sort of two ways of looking at it. One way, and I used to live in Colorado and I, I you know, being an oceanographer in Colorado, I, I got a lot of jokes about, you know, that I'd gotten lost somewhere along the way. <laughs> um, one way is that, um, the, the U.S. as a whole benefits from healthy coastal ecosystems. 
that's what supports uh, commercial fishing, fishing. So if you're buying fish, a lot of the fish you're buying, even if you're inland, has been either caught in coastal waters or at some part of their life history, um, the, 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 the fish or the, the invertebrates um, that you're eating um, depended upon healthy wetlands, healthy coastal waters. So if you like shellfish, for example, you need healthy coastal waterways. Um, but also even people that live inland, you know, we, the, the, the coastal region is a mecca for tourism and for recreation. So lots of people, even if they live inland, want to go to the coast at some point of the year. Um, you know, Virginia Beach, the, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, up and down the East Coast, similarly on the West Coast and the Gulf. Um, but the third is that these problems are interconnected. You know, a classic example is Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Chesapeake Bay has, a, has an excess nutrient problem. There's so many people living in the watershed of the Chesapeake. And the Chesapeake watershed reaches up it's not just you know Virginia and Maryland; it reaches well up into in, into Pennsylvania, for example. Um, and so, what's going on inland affects the coastal waterways. Uh, same with the Mississippi. You know, there's a large uh, oxygen minimum or hypoxic zone that forms in the Gulf of Mexico most summers, and it's too many nutrients running off from agriculture upstream. And of course, you know, at the same time that we're trying to save the coastal ocean, you know, we don't want nutrients running off. We don't want soils running, you know, soil erosion running off of, of inland agriculture waters. So many of the same actions um, that can improve, uh, you know, reduce this nutrient flux to the coastal waters also makes for healthier, more sustainable uh, uh, agriculture. So there's lots of things we can do that, to protect the coastal waters. And it's not just people living along the coast, it's also people inland who have to participate in that. Yeah, I think that's really an important point. We're all interconnected and uh, we're a large country, but it's important for each of us to understand how we, how we affect and impact these things. So how is coastal water quality affected by climate change? Obviously, climate change is a big um, issue. And um, how is this coastal water quality affected by that? Yeah, so there's sort of two ways um, that we've been focusing on. One is simply as the water warms. So we're seeing uh, as the climate changes, you're seeing a lot more um, a lot of more warmer events or, or marine heat waves. So for example, I have colleagues who work down at the UVA. Uh, the UVA has a coastal shore lab on the Eastern shore of Virginia, and they've been documenting over several decades uh, the changes in not just water quality, but the health of the ecosystem. And as the climate gets warmer, you see shifts in uh, the organisms that live there. So we're seeing, uh, you know, fish species that used to be living down off of Georgia are more common now off Virginia. Fish, fish species that used to be living off Virginia are now up living off New York. And so you're, you're seeing this wholesale shift of the ecosystem 
and adding temperature, heating the water, basically exacerbates all sorts of water quality issues. The algae can grow faster, uh, the water holds less oxygen, the bacteria grow faster, and so we think that hypoxia, this low, these low oxygen events, and some of these harmful algal bloom events are a combination of too many nutrients and warmer temperatures. The other thing that's affecting the coastal, uh, the coastal region in general, um, which expands beyond just water quality, is sea level rise and storms. So as you, uh, as climate is changing, we're actually heating the ocean. And you won't think about, you know, that if you take a glass of water and heat it up, it actually slightly expands. But the volume of the ocean is so large that um, as you warm it up, there's enough uh, of an increase in volume that we're actually seeing a gradual rise in sea level around the globe. And particularly along the Mid-Atlantic region, by changes in ocean circulation driven by climate change, and also melting of ice at the poles. So we're melting the Greenland ice sheet, parts of the Antarctic ice sheet, uh, mountain glaciers, all that excess water is pouring into the coastal, into the ocean, and that's leading the waters around the coast to rise. In Virginia, we're still, the, the land's actually sinking as well, which is a sort of a, a longer uh, story tied to the, the glacial, glacial geology from tens of thousands of years ago. We're still seeing responses of the earth to that. Um, the problem is that as the coastline shrinks or sea levels rising, coastlines are, are retreating uh, the wetlands are often getting squeezed out. So the wetlands, you know, coastal, coastal marshes, for example, are great water filters. They clean up the water and some of the pollution that's coming from land. But what's happening is the sea level's coming in from one side. In a lot of places, there's hard infrastructure, whether it's breakwaters or seawalls, um, parking lots, roads. There's no place for these wetlands. They get squeezed out. And so as the wetlands get squeezed out, there's less and less of a buffer to keep the coastal water, uh, keep the coastal water quality high. I see. So uh, finally, what can we do about coastal water quality? What can we do as individuals? And then what are some of the broader structural solutions? So there's been a lot of work on trying to come up with solutions and some of them are at the level of individual households. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of towns have been migrating away from septic systems, for example. Um, and unfortunately that's, that's really expensive and it, you typically needs help, not just from the town, but from the state or the federal government uh, to try to, uh, to pay for that infrastructure moving from septic systems to sewage treatment. Uh, sewage treatment can actually, particularly the advanced sewage treatment can remove a lot of these excess nutrients and also other pollutants that I, I haven't spent a lot of time on. Um, air quality actually turns out to be a really important factor. Um, some of these excess nutrients, particularly nitrogen, are coming from uh, air pollution. And so one of the big success stories over the last several decades 
is as we've improved uh, power plants, trucks, cars to reduce air pollution, that's actually reduced the amount of nitrogen that gets deposited from the atmosphere in coastal waterways. And then finally, one of the most challenging is uh, working with um, uh, agriculture to try to, and, and agricultural and also, uh, you know, communities fertilize, you know, they use fertilizer lawns and, and in general for um, both industrial and commercial residential use. Um, that's hard, you know, the, the, the jargony term there is there's non-point source pollution. You know, it's pretty easy to figure out where the sewage treatment plants are and to help upgrade the sewage treatment plants so that they're discharging, you know, cleaner water. It's much harder when the pollution sources are coming from lots of different places. And so, for example, the Chesapeake Bay program, it's a combination of working with the states that are in the watershed to try to uh, get the states to uh, help reduce uh, these non-point source, and then working with communities and stakeholders and providing them with the tools. And sometimes it's those tools are education and knowledge, but a lot of times it's financial assistance to help them migrate away from uh, one approach. Um, for example, one, one of the important things that you can do is around an agricultural field is put a, um, a buffer between the field and a stream. So that it's often, it's called a riparian buffer. Riparian is just a fancy name for for flowing water for a stream. But that buffer uh, actually prevents a lot of the nutrients from making it off the field into the stream. And that can also reduce the amount of erosion if you are working to try to reduce ero soil erosion, which is a big problem as well. And so it's a combination of, of education uh, and uh, financial tools to help communities um, reduce their, their pollution sources. Great, well, wonderful. So thank you so much, Professor Johnny, for sharing your knowledge and your expertise. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So, and thank you for listening. For upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, reportings, and blogs, please visit our website at alumni.virginia.edu backslash learn. We look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.